The Gospel of John, chapter 20, in verse 11 this morning. It's always good to remember. We try to remind ourselves every week that what we are about to read is not just a nice religious advice or a, a sweet story to comfort and bless the soul, distract us from our daily life. This is God's authoritative testimony about Himself, about His Son, about His people. It comes to us with absolute power and wisdom and joy this morning. I pray that we would read it with that expectation. We would read it with that anticipation that God is speaking to us on the day the church commemorates the resurrection of His Son. So let's begin reading. John chapter 20 and verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. Lord, please bless the preaching and the believing of Your Word. Well, I have spent a lifetime cultivating a particular habit. It's required a, a great deal of, of diligence and hard work intentionality. It's the regular habit of losing things. I regularly, faithfully lose my wallet, my hat, my glasses. Uh, I remember one time when I was younger, still living in my parents' home, I lost my keys. I couldn't find them anywhere. They were eventually discovered in the freezer, um, which could have been me. Actually, in that case, it was my little brother admitting that he was concerned they were melting and he was trying to be helpful. Uh, now, since I've been married, I lose things a little less often because my wife is gradually training me to be an adult, and thankfully, because of her influence, I haven't lost any of my children yet, uh, but with fair regularity, I will still be in a hurry and suddenly realize I don't have the very thing I, I need to get where I'm, I'm going. Now, 
Losses like that are regular and commonplace. And by the way, if you are one of those diligent people who never or rarely loses things, please don't come up at the end and tell me, you know, if you just put them in the same place, you'll never… I know that. That's the problem, okay? <laughs> Losing something because you're forgetful or because you have a little brother is one thing, but there are other kinds of losses, aren't there? Painful losses. Losses that are abrupt, shocking, at times even devastating. I think of the memory that I have of my mother getting news that her father had died and just crying out abruptly in our home, and that, that cry just piercing me to my heart. I, I think of, of mothers who have lost children or wives who have lost husbands. Loss even deeply painful loss is a regular and dreaded part of our daily lives on this earth. It's a reality that we seek to avoid, to postpone, to medicate, to laugh off, but it is a dreadful certainty that comes to us with every news cycle, with the updates of further anger in our country, further division in our world, further reports of sickness and violence in our cities. We seek to insulate ourselves from it, but Loss, even deadly loss, is a guarantee. Now, the Bible meets us in our experience of loss, and we need to, we need to engage with the human element of the loss in this story if we are to appreciate and understand the claim that it makes on us this morning. We need to identify with the Bible's account of this woman weeping outside of a tomb. We've heard this story before. We've perhaps heard it many times, but we need to get in touch with the, the human element of this story. It's essential to understand and to apply the story to our, ourselves. Here is a woman weeping outside of a tomb, facing an abrupt and devastating loss. And the Bible meets us there, where she is and where we often are, and it offers us an exchange. It offers us an exchange. There's an exchange offered in this story. It doesn't do this with superficial optimism like a, a, a lollipop in a hospital waiting room or distraction like a, a Netflix binge after a bad marriage fight. It doesn't do it that way. It does this with news that is deeper more eternal, more unstoppable, more lasting. So what I want to do this morning is, is I want to walk through the story first of all and try to understand the exchange that takes place here and, and see the main point that the story is making. And then for the second half of the message, we'll look at three elements of that main point and how they address the hopelessness and the losses that we face on a regular basis as we walk through this losing season of life. First, let's look at the beginning of this passage and verse 11, which starts with Mary weeping outside the tomb. Verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the, loom, to, into the tomb. Mary had lost her Lord not once, but twice. She lost Him to death, and not just any death, but death on a Roman cross, the most humiliating and scandalous death possible at the time. The one she dearly loved had been humiliated, tortured, crucified, and laid in a grave. Her gratefulness for him, 
her hopes for his continued ascendancy in Israel, her dependence on his teaching, her joy in his presence, all were nailed to that cross and laid in that grave. And then she lost him again when she went to pay him appropriate burial respects and burial rites and found, to her, I'm sure, surprise and dismay, that even the body was not left to her to honor in any way that she could. She had lost him twice. Now, we need, to, we need to understand some of Mary's past if we're going to get in touch with the human element of this story. Luke informs us that Mary had at one time been possessed by seven demons. Now, we need to try to imagine the absolute helplessness of a woman possessed of demons, of messengers of Satan sent to oppress and harass her. Imagine the kind of alternating rage and terror, hopelessness that a woman would experience as agents of Satan oppress her on a daily basis. And then, suddenly, she encountered this teacher from Nazareth. And at a word, she was suddenly rescued. She was set free. And from that point on, she had loyally followed him, listening to his teaching, enjoying his presence, trying to understand his mission and authority. And she had followed him right up to the brutal moment when she was one of those women who doggedly followed him to a hill outside of Jerusalem, saw him lifted and nailed on a wooden Roman cross, perhaps heard his cry, it is finished, saw his head bow in death, saw the spear plunge into his side, and saw him come down lifeless and limp from that cross. Now, this is Mary's moment. This is her loss. Death and grief consumed her, and she wept. Not even the body now left to her to honor in any way that she could. She is gripped by loss and certainly by hopelessness. Apparently for Mary, even the appearance of angels does not dissuade her from her grief. Look at verse 12. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Now, this angelic question, the way John often does, it has a subtle touch of irony. We might even hear a subtle invitation or rebuke in the question. Why are you weeping? We might paraphrase it. Do you still have reason to be weeping? And of course, the very appearance of angels should clue her in that something unusual seems to be taking place around this tomb. But Mary is so blinded, so gripped by her understandable hopelessness and grief that she is not able to discern the truth that would set her free. So she answers them quite practically. They have taken my Lord away, and I do not know where they have laid him. You can feel the tension building in this story. The way John writes it, it's really a genius literary story as well. He's just building the tension. It's almost like you could imagine a more, a more lighthearted setting where someone is about to receive a great surprise, and you know it, and the other people know it, but they don't know it. And you can, you can feel that expectation coming. Well, that expectation is, is right there for Mary. It's right next to her. The reason for the exchange is right in her presence, and yet she cannot see it. Doubt is tenacious. It clings to her. It holds on to her, and it will not let her go. Actually, 
Actually, it will not even allow her to see what is right in front of her. Verse 14 brings the tension in this passage between grief and joy, hopelessness and hope, into its highest point. Turning around, she sees Jesus in verse 14, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Again, we hear the subtle, gentle exhortation, invitation. Who exactly is it that you thought Jesus was? And yet Mary's hopelessness, as dedicated as she was to Jesus, as affectionate as she was of Him, even worshipful of Him, could not fully comprehend the true scope of His mission. As faithful a follower as she was, and there was none more faithful than Mary, yet she could not fully see Him as the one who would conquer death. She could not fully understand the scope of His glory and His power. Who was she seeking? Well, she was seeking Jesus, but someone a little less than Jesus would prove Himself to be. Doubt is tenacious. And if we're honest, doubt is tenacious in our life as well. I mean, be honest with yourself. Don't you have moments where doubt clings to you, where it it holds to you? It's as if it, it closes your eyes to the many reasons you have for faith and I have for hope. It, it holds on. It is a, a dogged enemy, isn't it? Doesn't it hold on to our hearts sometimes? It doesn't allow us to see and have faith in the way that we should. Sometimes a reason for hope is literally right in front of us. It is, spiritually speaking, right before us, and yet, and yet hopelessness clings. It holds on. The darkness will not lift, as one author puts it. It, it holds on to us like it holds on to Mary. And, and in that moment, what we need is to hear the voice that Mary heard. We need to hear that voice coming into our darkness, our hopelessness, and opening our eyes. Jesus speaks a single word to Mary. Mary. Suddenly, her disbelief lifts. Her eyes, spiritually speaking, are opened. And from hopelessness and doubt, she suddenly comes to faith. There he is. There he is. It is worth noting, I think it is intentional. I think John does this intentionally, that it is his word speaking her name that is the means of opening her eyes. The one who was the word will speak the word that will give her faith. He's reminding us, I think, of the explosive power, the illuminating power of the Word of Christ, even as Paul will say theologically later in Romans 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. We need to see ourselves, I think, in our own battle with helplessness as having the same need. We need the Word of Christ to open our eyes. More than we need to see things physically, we need to hear things spiritually so that our our hearts are opened and our unbelief is removed and we can see the reason for the hope that we have. It's also worth noting that in this one word, He reveals His knowledge of her. He knew her, if we can put it this way, before she knew Him. He was right next to her, yet she knew it not. 
And he reveals, I know you, though you do not yet know me. And the same is true for us. Every time the Lord comes to us in our grief, in our suffering, in our doubt, in our helplessness, the reality is he knows us even before we recognize him. He knows us. He is with us. He is watching us just as he was with Mary, even in the midst of our grief, even in the midst of our hopelessness, even when our hopelessness extends beyond where it should. He is there, and he speaks, knowing us before we know him, and suddenly her doubt is lifted. We can imagine that she runs to him. One commentator speculates that likely she would have thrown herself at his feet, clinging to his feet in utter awe and amazement. The impossible is possible. The crucified and broken body is somehow resurrected. Somehow the corpse in the grave is standing and speaking to her. Her Lord is alive. Her reason for grief is standing in front of her. Her reason for hopelessness is no longer, no longer in the grave, no longer on the cross. He is alive. But Jesus is not content for the joy that Mary is experiencing, the exchange that Mary is experiencing, to be left to her alone. He is concerned for his other sorrowing and grieving followers. And so he commissions her with a message, a point John will make again and again, the other gospel writers as well, is that when we encounter Jesus, we are immediately commissioned with the message about Jesus. So he commissions her, do not cling to me, he says, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, I have to tell you, there is more New Testament theology packed into those verses than we can possibly explore in a single sermon. I mean, in one brief few sentences, Jesus explodes New Testament definition of what he came to do and what he is doing now. In just a couple of phrases, I mean, just to summarize, just to summarize, he begins by saying, I, I don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to my Father. Now, the commentators disagree to some degree because he's saying, don't cling to me, and he's, that's, he's indicating you're not going to have my bodily presence with you, and therefore, you need to be aware I am bodily going to be ascending to the Father. That's why you can't cling to me. Or, or is he saying, don't cling to me because uh, you need to go tell uh, the, the, the brothers about what I'm going to do, and I have a message for you. It may be a little bit of both. He may be indicating to Mary and the other followers, listen, you need to understand what's happening here. I am not going to be bodily present with you, but good news, that's because I am ascending to the Father. And by the way, my God and Father are your God and Father. So we have right here, packed, packed into a few phrases, the what's called the heavenly session of Jesus, that he ascends to the Father's right hand and he rules and reigns over the affairs of his church. That as the risen, 
the one who was crucified and now risen, the Lord and Savior, the God-man mediator for all of God's purposes. He is ruling and reigning at God's right hand. That's contained in here. What's also contained in here is that this relationship that he has with God was somehow not obliterated by the cross, but has now been vindicated in his resurrection. So though he went to the cross as a crucified and judged man in our place, yet somehow that crucifixion must have been sufficient to pay for that sin because now he's been vindicated and he can call God his God, the Father his Father, and more than that, because of what he did on the cross and because of his resurrection, he tells them, my relationship with God, I now share with you. Think of the, the meaning packed into those. I mean, Paul spends books, chapters exploring what Jesus is saying here. There's whole chapters devoted to what this means, that the, the, the one who has a relationship with God from eternity past has now shared with us that same relationship. That, that even as he ascends to the Father, we have one there who represents us so that by faith we can literally go to heaven and stand with God as our God and have God as our Father. This is, this is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel, that the resurrection of Christ affirms and provides for us. Now, I want you to notice something about the main point. Remember I said we're going to get to the, what's the main point of this passage? Notice where Mary begins and where Mary ends. Do you see that in the passage? It's one of the ways that we understand narrative sections of the Bible. Notice where Mary begins. Mary, in verse 11, stood weeping outside the tomb. She's consumed by hopelessness and loss. At the end, Mary went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Do you see what happened there? And do you see what took place right in the middle? Jesus says to her, Mary. So what happens? Well, there's an exchange that happens. Hopelessness is exchanged for the good news of the risen Lord. In one moment, she is a, a hopeless woman weeping outside the tomb. And in the next moment, she is a messenger full of faith and purpose and joy. She has exchanged hopelessness for good news. And brothers and sisters, that is the exchange that John offers to us this morning. So I want you to do something for me. Think about in your life, where is hopelessness present in your life? Where is it present? Where has it gripped you? Where is it tenaciously holding on to you? Hopelessness or the grief of this fallen world. It's, it's present in some corner, some area of your life. Maybe it's been consuming you recently. Well, the reason this passage is written is to give you an exchange, to invite you to exchange. We put, could put it this way, to command you to exchange hopelessness for the good news of the risen Christ to make that exchange so that though you are hopeless, and, and be clear, this is not superficial happiness. Mary will surely continue to miss the physical nearness of Jesus, his physical friendship next to her. Surely she will miss that. There will be grief that she will face in her life when she watches her friends, the apostles, be martyred in just a few, over the course of the next few decades. There will be grief as she watches churches persecuted. There will be grief that she faces, but in her tears... 
there will always be this undercurrent of joy. She will be, as Paul calls us, sorrowful yet always rejoicing because she's been given this exchange. And that's the exchange that God offers to us on Easter morning and every morning to exchange our hopelessness for good news of the risen Christ. That is the offer. That's the command of this passage. I want to look, I want to look as we, we move into the final section of this message, I want to look at three elements of that exchange because our hopelessness is not all the same. Sometimes people struggle with hopelessness in one particular way, and sometimes they struggle in another particular way. And I think the good news that is offered in this passage can speak to different kinds of hopelessness that we may need in different kinds of moments in our life. So three elements of this good news that is offered in exchange for our hopelessness. First, good news, this good news, is based on the fact of the risen Christ. It's based on the fact of the risen Christ. I want you to notice that in this passage, Mary encounters the fact that Jesus is alive after death. She encounters a fact. Now, in our day and age, it is commonly the case that our emotions are equated with facts, that what I feel about something is my truth. But the Bible comes at that differently. The Bible says there is truth, and your emotions should conform to that truth. In the Bible, the fact of Jesus' resurrection is objective, immovable, unchangeable, regardless of how someone feels about it it, throughout their life or on Wednesday morning or after their car breaks down or whether they're having a fight with their spouse or their, their child is struggling in their life. Regardless of their feelings at that moment, the fact of Jesus' resurrection does not change. Actually, the Bible views things in the opposite way. It says our feelings need to submit to the fact of the resurrected Christ. Now, that's a very different way of doing life, isn't it? To tell our feelings that they are not in charge, and actually they may not define reality. They must conform to reality, and especially this reality. Mary is changed not because she had a, a mood transition during the day, She didn't start by saying, this is a bad day. Why is it a bad day? Because I feel bad about it. Now it's a good day. Why is it a good day? I don't know. I just started to feel good about it. Therefore, it's a good day. No, that's not what happened to Mary. What happened? She was having a bad day based on the fact that she was assuming he was dead. Then she encountered the risen Christ, and suddenly, what should happen to her emotions? They should align with the fact of Jesus' resurrection. The same is true for us. Now, if you struggle with allowing your feelings to dominate and be authoritative, if your feelings act like the king in your heart or in your home, let me encourage you to bring your feelings to the facts of Jesus' resurrection, to address them. At times, they are like unruly children. They will not respond quickly. But whether they respond or not, your mind can affirm these facts and just tell your feelings they're going to have to catch up. Feelings sometimes are given this kind of authority in their life that, that they should not have. I might feel terribly tomorrow. I might feel awful, sad. But you know what? Jesus is still alive. 
I might feel depressed and discouraged and uncertain, but you know what? Jesus is still alive. So I can address my feelings and say, you know what, feelings? Line up with this fact. Jesus Christ, having died for my sins, rose to glory and is sitting at the right hand of God. The fact of the good news means it is not just helpful comfort for the soul, a witticism from some religious poem that blesses your day. No, it is a fact. It is not a, a bit of water for you to stand on. It is a rock for you to stand on. It is not a pillar of sand. It is a pillar of stone. It is not quicksand. It is a mountain. Our feelings need to line up with the good news being a fact. He was seen risen from the dead. Second element of this good news that I think can address moments of helplessness and hopelessness in our life. This good news is anchored in the heavenly reign of Christ. Notice Jesus says to Mary, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended. And then he gives her that same message to say, I am ascending to my father. And then it says in verse 18, he, she went and said these things to them. And so in a sense, it's repeated. He repeats it to her. He tells her to give this message. And then later on, apparently she was faithful and gave that message. Why is the ascension of Jesus Christ a part of the good news? Well, for this reason. The ascension of Christ is an important news because it is the basis for our confidence as we toil through this world where we do continue to lose things. Dumb things and dear things. It is the basis for our confidence. Mary will still face painful, brutal losses in her life. But... Whenever that moment comes, she can look by faith and see her Lord and know He is ascended at the right hand of His God and Father. She can have absolute confidence, as the New Testament writers will further describe as their pages unfold, that He is ruling and reigning over this creation and guaranteeing the progress of the gospel until He returns. He is beyond the dangers of this world and therefore above and over them, such that even the efforts of the enemy against His people will turn around for their good. Even the efforts of evil to thwart the progress of the gospel will only serve to propose Propel the gospel forward. There is no power on this earth that can reach to heaven. And since Christ is in heaven, he has power over the things of this age. The ascension of Christ is part of the good news so that the church can have confidence until he returns. Now, this is important because from one season to the next, this world is shaken. Kingdoms rise and fall. Cultures will grow rotten and menacing. Governments will be affirming of the church in one season and threatening the church in another. The church will face many earthly losses, loss of respect, loss of material goods, loss of political freedoms, even loss of earthly life. But since our Lord is in heaven to rule and reign at God's right hand in complete vindication of his glory, they never have any need to exchange hope for hopelessness. Now, if you 
are facing a temptation to hopelessness because of the rise and fall of our culture or the menace of social evils or the uncertainty of political freedoms. Remember that Jesus is not limited by earthly challenges. He is reigning supreme above them. Remember that He can no longer be threatened by the threats of the world or endangered by the governments of this world. And as the New Testament will go on to clarify, not only is He ruling over it, but since He is there, it is the guarantee that one day we will be there as well. It's actually precisely what He said to the disciples. Look, I I go, but I don't just go. I go to prepare a place for you. Sometimes I think the solidity, the reality, the physical certainty of heaven doesn't sufficiently come to us in the midst of our shaking lives. Look, there is a real place called heaven, and Jesus is really bodily there. It's not just an idea or a wishful thought to comfort you. It's not just some better place that we kind of metaphorically throw out at a funeral. It is a real place. He is a real person. He promises that having gone there, He will certainly take us there to Himself. This is why the early church martyrs could go confidently to their deaths. It's why they could suffer the loss of homes and families and loved ones because they were going where Jesus was. The ascension of Christ, the presence of Christ in heaven is always a reason to exchange hopelessness for hope. What does it matter if your roof leaks? You have a roof in heaven that has no leaks. What does it matter if your dear friend betrays you? You have a friend in heaven who is watching you every minute of every day. What does it matter if you feel lonely or lost or forgotten? There is one in heaven who is preparing a place for you. Do you see why the ascension of Christ gives absolute confidence so that every moment of helplessness and hopelessness can be easily exchanged for hope in the good news of the risen and ascended Christ? Good news is anchored in the heavenly reign of Christ. And finally, good news, this good news provides a new relationship with God in Christ. Why did Jesus say it this way? I'm going to my God and Father and your God and Father. Why does he say it that way? Well, he's giving in in the simplest of hint forms the truth that Jesus' death and burial in our place was completely successful. Listen, for a Jewish person, a person being crucified on a cross indicated that that person was under the curse of God, as we just discussed as a church Friday night. There would certainly have been the confusion and question, well, I I thought he was God's agent. He certainly seemed to display God's power. But how could it possibly be that God is okay with Jesus and Jesus is okay with, he called him his own father. How, How could that be since he was cursed? And here we have the solution. Jesus in our place took our curse. He took on our sin and he was rejected and forsaken by the holiness of God by his crucifixion and death. And yet, he was able to bear that curse and rejection completely, successfully, we could say, permanently, so that when he rose from the dead, it was a declaration that he had fully and successfully and victoriously ended the barrier between sinful people and their God. So he's saying in in just the 
briefest of phrases, the, the delightful, it's almost tantalizing what he says here. Paul will take all of Romans to just explore just these few phrases. What is he saying here? He's saying, God, my God, the God, has become your Father. You are reconciled to Him, no longer condemned, no longer judged. He's actually sharing with us his own relationship with God. It's, it's the miracle of relationship with God that is the essence of the goodness of the good news. In other words, heaven is not just some place we get to go someday that's better than hell. No, it's the place where we will be in permanent fellowship with God. And that fellowship begins now by faith. Look, this is the great exchange. This is the exchange. Ultimately, the real reason for hopelessness is that sinners are estranged from God. They are separated from Him. They cannot know Him. He does not welcome them into His presence. But now, because Jesus bore our sin, God calls us His children. He welcomes us into His family room to know Him and love Him, and more importantly, to be known and loved by Him. Now, that is a reason to exchange hopelessness for good news every day. John Piper says it this way, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. The resurrection of Christ is the demonstration that God has accepted His sacrifice, has vindicated His mission, and has determined to reconcile people to God from every time and place. Now, sometimes we can go through the motions of Christian practice, coming to church, even reading certain doctrinal books, but stop short of realizing the good news that in the risen Christ, God is now our God, and the Father is now our Father, and we have the privilege of close personal, secured, assured, loving, permanent relationship with Him because of Christ. This is the good news of Easter Sunday. Vindication for the substitute, the glory of the second person of the Trinity in human form going to heaven and declaring, now these doors are open for all who will believe in me. Now, let me appeal to you. Where are you feeling the tenacity of hopelessness right now? Where is it? Are your emotions playing with you? Do you need to exchange that emotional tyranny with the fact of the risen Christ? Perhaps you are Worried about the shaking world around us and the uncertainty about the future? Do you need to be transferring those hopeless thoughts with the good news that there is a, an ascended Lord who is ruling and reigning and will take you with Him one day? Perhaps you've been plagued by your guilt, by your failures, by your messing up yet again in the same area 
that I was still working on 20 years ago. I'm still working on it today. Why am I still struggling in this way? Do you need to exchange hopelessness for the good news that God is your Father, that in Christ He loves you because of what Jesus did? Listen, God is not just trying to to whisper words over us. He wants us. He's calling us to make this exchange. John, if he was here, would be preaching at us, make this exchange. Make it. Exchange your hopelessness for the good news of the risen Christ. Listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, listen, this is the good news of Easter. You're a sinner, and you have sinned like I have against God. And yet, God sent his son to die on the cross to pay for those sins, and then he rose to glory so that he could always offer salvation to anyone who would repent of their sins and believe in him. Now, that doesn't have to wait until you're 40 or 80 to believe that message. You can believe it right now. Actually, you can spend your whole life enjoying this good news rather than weeping in helplessness. Wouldn't you rather spend your whole life enjoying good news than weeping outside of a tomb? Because all of us have a tomb in our future. And we can spend our whole life weeping outside of it until our turn comes. Or we can spend that whole life enjoying the good news of Jesus So that when our moment of death comes, if Jesus doesn't come back between now and then, we can just walk through that doorway into the place he has prepared for us. That is the invitation, the good news that Jesus is offering to you. Even if you've never believed in him yet, you can believe in him right now by the grace of God. Let me encourage all of us. John comes to us with this exchange. He appeals to us, and God commands us to make it. John says in just a few verses later that he wrote these things so that we would believe. So I say to you, believe. Believe in the good news of the risen Christ. Exchange your helplessness and hopelessness for this good news. Make this exchange right now in response to the word, and let it shape you as we walk forward into this world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming, living, dying, and rising from the dead, ascending to glory. And Lord, I pray that you would banish hopelessness. Hopelessness, Lord, because of many losses, from every heart here this morning. Lord, I pray for those that need to believe in you as Savior for the first time, that right now you would illuminate their eyes. You would speak a word into their soul. They would hear, Lord, they would hear you say their name. Lord, their eyes would be open and they would cling to you as Savior and Lord. I pray that they would cast their sins at your feet and receive your forgiveness and the good news of eternal hope in you. Lord, for those that have battled, Lord, emotions and fears and doubts for years and decades. Lord, give them this exchange. Hope in a risen Savior. Lord, let that flood their lives. In Jesus' name we pray.